Due to some recording difficulties, the first three minutes or so aren't going to sound quite right, but after that it's going to sound just fine. Thank you very much for listening. KRS Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. And this is Art Hour, and I'm your host, Mike Malsom. And I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Eric, uh, who do we have today for our guest? A little connection here to Elsie. Well, there's a connection, yeah. This started off where I have a student in my fourth period, and she said, well, you know, my dad is, he works at Gonzaga, and he's, he just published this, he's got this book. Do you want to look at it? And I said, well, yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. Uh, so she brought it into class, and it's about um, an exhibit, an exhibit, what do you call it, exhibition? It's an exhibition. Exhibition up at, and do you pronounce it Junt? It's Junt. Junt, okay. At the Junt art museum on the gu campus and we have paul mano guerra perfect who is the director slash curator of the giant art, art museum. museum yes welcome yeah thank yes, you it's welcome. wonderful to be here yeah Great. thanks for coming in of course so i mean the reason we're here really is because i, I want to talk about how you got here because you're not from here you've been here you said six and a half years right yes correct uh so uh, I mean, let's just jump into um, what's going on at the museum, uh, the who, what, when, where, why. What's going on over there? Sure. Well, we essentially function, even though we've got a permanent collection at the Junt Art Museum at Gonzaga, as a, what would be a Kunsthal. We essentially change the museum over three times a year. So we've got two exhibitions typically that we run. We run six exhibitions in a calendar year. You come visit us now. You come back in June, and the exhibitions and everything is on display is all different. Same thing again in the fall semester. Um, so we're running changing exhibitions. We've got about 5,400 objects in the collection at the Junt Art oh, Museum yeah. and a relatively small space and relatively small staff. And so it means doing temporary exhibitions to get some of that collection on display. So our two exhibitions right now are entirely permanent collection. All the objects belong to the Junt Art Museum at Gonzaga University. The first one's a small exhibition that's uh, using the entire collection, and it's, it's themed on prints by women in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Oh. And Gonzaga's got a whole series of programs that they're running all academic year, specifically geared toward the anniversary of the 19th Amendment, that 100th anniversary. And so that was our contribution to all those various events, is we've got 20 prints, 20 different women since the 1920s uh, from each decade. And that, that's our contribution to all of the events going on in celebration of the 19th Amendment. So there's that exhibition. And then our larger exhibition is 76 works where the subject matter is Italy. It's titled A Grand Tour, Images of Italy from the Permanent Collection of the Junt Art Museum. So now, how, how did you decide to do that? Why did you decide to do the, oh, the Grand Tour of Italy? That's a wonderful question because that's a much longer story. <laughs> okay. Which is good for I like art, long which stories. Which is good yeah. for art hour. It's yeah. a longer story. <laughs> So as an undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame, I spent my entire sophomore year in Rome. While there, that second semester in Rome, uh, we had a class, an English class, that was specifically mostly European, but in particular English and American writers who visited Italy and wrote about it. And that was the English class that I took second semester while studying abroad as an undergraduate back in 1989, 1990. 
And so what that meant was we started by reading Shakespeare. We read Julius Caesar, and we ended up reading Goethe and Stendhal and some of those other Europeans who visited Italy as part of their educational capstone experience. Um, and then moved into British and American writers, uh, Charles Dickens, his writings about Italy, but then Americans, Herman Melville, Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, eventually Henry James, and I think we ended with E.M. Forrester and reading A Room with a View. And so it was just a wonderful class to take while studying abroad and being in Italy myself was to then be reading all of these European and American writers writing about their experience living and traveling in Italy, and in some cases creating original literary works based upon those experiences. And that impacted me, um, and it was 30 years ago now, <laughs> a long time ago. Uh, and then as I moved into working in art museums, I've got a 27-year career at art museums now, that hurts to say 27-year career in art museums. <laughs> um, the artists as a different subset of people who went to Italy, who took what's called this grand tour, this educational capstone experience that was a fulfillment of their classical education, artists were a subset. It's again and again and again the story of artists and their biographies that they took that very same trip, went to Italy. And so I realized that my fascination with that as a concept focused on writers like we had in that class transferred nicely to artists. And so eventually it became my PhD dissertation, which was focused specifically on American painters who went to Italy in the two decades prior to the Civil War in the 1840s and the 1850s. Um, when at one point there were dozens, in the winter of 1858, there were dozens of American artists living in Rome as a community. And so it became a dissertation when I got my first job after the PhD, which was at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia. I was permitted to turn that dissertation into an exhibition and an exhibition catalog, which I did. And then when I took this job at Gonzaga University, the Gent Art Museum, six and a half years ago, and I started looking at the collection, there was a core group of images, which were, Italy was the subject matter. And it made sense to then contextualize those images and build a whole exhibition on that subject all over again. So it's simply a revisiting of an idea that I've been thinking about now for three decades. Did you know when you came to Gonzaga that, that they had all that stuff in their permanent collection? I did. I had, I had seen those objects in particular. Um, there's a core grouping. Uh, there was a Spokane doctor and his wife who were major print collectors here in Spokane, and they gave an initial gift back in the 1980s to Gonzaga of 500 works on paper. Mm. Uh, that moved from the late Renaissance to contemporary for them, which was the 1980s. And they gave that collection to Gonzaga University. It really became the founding collection for the Junt Art Museum, which has only been around since 1995. Um, and there's a core group of objects that are, have Italy as subject matter that are byproducts of this exact same process, that process of visiting Italy as a capstone educational experience to a classical education. And so it, I knew they were there. It made sense then to go ahead and just revisit it. Um, so it's been a six-and-a-half-year process of ending up with this exhibition. Well, and you did it, did you say Georgia Southern? No, Georgia, the University of Georgia. Georgia University of Georgia, Florida. okay. Yeah. Uh, now, they probably didn't have the permanent collection, but that one was a lot different, I would It imagine. was, yes, there were objects in that permanent collection, but oh. th that museum in particular, it was an opportunity for me to borrow paintings that I had written about in my dissertation oh. and borrow those mm -hmm. from other universities and other museums and put them in that exhibition. So it was a very 
similar topic, exact same topic, but different kind of an exhibition because it was very heavy on paintings, whereas we're heavy on prints here at, at the Gent Art Museum. So they're going to see prints um, from, I mean, what are we talking about, the breadth of time? Sure. The, so, the, the, so the earliest print is by a French artist who took this exact same educational experience, took a tour to Italy, and ended up living in Rome for a period of time. His name is Etienne Duperac. And the earliest print we have by him is 1575, and it's of the Pantheon in Rome. Hmm. And then you move all the way through the exhibition, the 76 works of art, you end up with contemporary images, images dated 2015, I think Hmm. is the latest one in the exhibition. So you move through, I'm bad at math, four centuries of image making, five centuries of image making, of artists spending time in Italy creating images of Italy. So part of the point of the exhibition is that it tells that story. It tells the story of what's called the Grand Tour, which is initially it was largely aristocrats, European aristocrats, who were getting a classical education, studying Greek and Latin, reading the Greek and Latin writers in their original languages. That was what they learned as children and adolescents. And then the opportunity to travel as a wealthy European meant that they could have the experience where they could not only have read Tacitus, for example, and read about the Roman emperors, but you could go to Rome and see the evidence of the Roman emperors. And so it was that study abroad type of experience that then ended their education when they went back to be aristocrats or diplomats or professionals in whatever European nation they were from. The core part of the Grand Tour ends up being British aristocrats in the 18th century, in the 1700s where as participants in the British Empire, to be diplomats or merchants or lawyers serving the British Empire, you had that classical education, but then you took a trip across the channel to the continent, which meant visiting Paris, but then also the Italian peninsula. And then you added other sites on to fulfill your grand tour. You went to places like Geneva or Dresden or Berlin as part of your travels that fulfilled your educational experience. And so that's true again and again and again in the biography of European aristocrats coming out of the Renaissance all the way into the 19th century. And artists are just a subset of the group of people who took that grand tour. With the 19th century, well, with the American and French revolutions first, but then with the 19th century with concepts like steamship travel and train travel, improved roads, the grand tour began to open up to a middle class that also included an American middle class by the time you get to the 19th century. And so I went through that list of, of literary writers, famous American literary writers, Herman Melville, Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne. They all continued that tradition of the Grand Tour. They all went to Italy as part of an educational experience. And you again get American artists that are just a subset of the people who are taking that tour. And by the time you get to the 20th century, it's open to a much wider swath of people, both in Europe and the United States, and really in the middle part of the 20th century, it, it associates for Europeans in particular with car culture. And that's why you end up with something like the Michelin Guides that mm-hmm. end up telling you what to see and how you see it while you're in Italy is because Michelin was selling tires, and they were also selling you the guidebooks to tell you what to see when you were in some place like Rome. So, I mean, it went over four centuries plus, and that's yes, what you said, right? correct. So, uh, I know styles change in art. 
But what other sorts of things do you notice since since the Grand Tour changed over time? It went from being something that only aristocrats could do and then diplomats and then more of a middle class. And then, you know, any backpacker with, you know, a thousand bucks from their graduation uh, <laughs> right. uh, yep. coffer. Yep. So what have you noticed about the way um, maybe the depictions change or what they choose to uh, to draw or paint? How have you noticed the, the, the change so, over time? So part of it is stylistically and just the, the application of. Um, whatever is popular as far as the current modern style of painting. So we've got an example in the exhibition of a, an American Impressionist. His name is John Ferguson Weir, and we've got a wonderful painting that he did of Assisi that's in the exhibition. Um, and it's done in a French Impressionist style, the loose brush strokes, the pastel colors. In fact, it's very pink and very rosy in his presentation of the Italian hill town of Assisi. Um, he would have been following that French Impressionist style, but typically he would have been painting, applying the loose brush strokes and the pastel colors to an American landscape as American Impressionist. But in this case, his subject matter just happens to be Italy and the, the Basilica of St. Francis and Assisi is his subject matter. And so that's just one example, the application of whatever the current style is. But really, the subject matter doesn't change. The same sites, the canonical sites, the ones that everybody visits in Italy stay the same subject matter. So the Pantheon, the Colosseum, the various churches, St. Peter's, uh, when you get to some place like Florence, and in the exhibition it's true, it's just the Ponte Vecchio again and again and again in Florence and some of the images. Um, but then the canals of Venice, something like Paradise Bridge or the Bridge of Sighs in Venice or the Lagoon in Venice with the churches in the background and St. Mark's, that it doesn't really matter what century that's still the subject matter in the images. And so that's an interesting part of the story that ends mm -hmm. up getting told. Mm. And then the other subset, of course, is that through the 76 images, visitors to the exhibition get to vicariously take their own grand tour. Mm -hmm. They get to experience these images of all of these places on the Italian peninsula, all of the cities, Rome, Venice, Florence. There's examples from Naples and Sicily. Um, you get to experience that vicariously through the images that the artists have created. So we get, you get to visit the exhibition and take your own tour of Italy through those 76 works that are in the exhibition. Hmm. That's you, very, yeah, I was going to say, really interesting. I, it would be cool as educators, and, I'm, and I think uh, we have college students as part of their curriculum that they'll maybe take a trip to Italy and stay in a place for a semester or a year and, and could take this grand tour, but... Uh, how impactful that would be for you know our high school students to to experience that um certainly we've yeah. had we've had groups from elementary school all the way through senior citizens already coming through and of course we gear a lot of what we do to gonzaga students and gonzaga classes and professors and students at the university but we're open to the public monday through saturday 10 to 4 and so we get people who are visiting campus coming in but then also other school groups from within the region uh, come into the exhibition. So we're, we're proud of that. And, and you're right, it, it lends itself to that kind of an educational experience of a cultural other uh, and the experience of Italy and essentially visually traveling to Italy when it's that opportunity through the exhibition. So what, what void does that fill? I mean, and you, you're talking about that uh, started out with, um, you know, princes and, you know, people of royalty doing this at first, too. And then eventually the technology allows maybe the middle class to experience that. But um, what void in the educational experience of maybe what is an educated person does this kind of experience fill? Sure. 
Um, it's the idea of the experience of the authentic. The idea of experiencing the real thing as opposed to just reading about it in a book. So that's true for the 16th century visitors to Italy. It's about the experience of the authentic. Here's the Colosseum. I've been reading about the Colosseum, and here it is for me to experience. And then that's true now in the 21st century, as you get to experience a lot of sites in the virtual world through the Internet. Mm -hmm. I think if I were to travel Italy today, I'd start by you know booking my hotel, using the Internet, and all of those sorts of details. But the experience of it in person is all about the authentic, about seeing the actual sites. And in some ways, the sites become canonical. It becomes part of the expected experience of visiting Italy. It doesn't make sense to go to Rome and not go see St. Peter's or enter the Colosseum. It's not a true experience of Rome then. You may have been there, but you didn't really live it in the way that people have been living it, visiting for centuries. And, and you did your own grand tour, right? I did, as a, beginning as an undergraduate, and I've been back to Italy. I've had the pleasure of being back to Italy a couple different times, so certainly true. And as far as the, the authentic there, what are the places that you gravitate toward? Oh, that's a good question. I, I, I'm probably not much different, but I, I, in particular, I like some of the out-of-the-way churches in Rome, mm-hmm. uh, some of the off-the-beaten-track ones. Um, there's a couple that date to the era of Constantine, so they're the earliest Christian basilicas, someplace like St. Paul's outside the walls. That's a little off the beaten tourist track. It's not the kind of place that all the tourists make sure that they get to in the way that St. Peter's of the Colosseum is. And so I like some of the spaces like that that are maybe a little bit off the beaten track. So when I ask mm-hmm. about the authentic, so you have your favorite authentic. Now, I know you probably won't want to say this, but do you have a piece or pieces in the exhi- exhibition right now that you say these are the ones that really kind of oh, speak yeah. to you, that jump out at you? There's a couple that have um, just the weight of art historical importance that are part of it. Um, and then there's others that are just kind of fun. So an example of two that are of that art historical importance. There's an image of Venice executed by James Abbott McNeil Whistler. Now, Whistler is one of those artists whose name that most people, if they don't know a lot about art, they've at least heard of Whistler. Of course, his two most famous paintings, there's the one that's the portrait of his mother Mm. in profile. She's largely dressed in black, seated in the chair, commonly referred to as Whistler's mother. Mm. His proper title, like a lot of Whistler's titles, which are hinged on music and musical titles, is Arrangement in Black and Gray, Colin, the artist's mother. His other most famous image is one that's commonly referred to as Falling Rocket. It's now in the Detroit Institute of Arts. And it's, a, it's an image that's abstracted nocturne, a night scene. So again, he's using a musical term, which shows a fireworks display along the Thames in London. That painting was criticized by the English art critic John Ruskin in print. He said that Whistler was flinging a pot of paint in the public's face. <laughs> and Whistler took exception and, using British libel law, sued John Ruskin. Uh, and, long story short, Whistler wins the libel suit, but the cost of the experience of the lawsuit, paying his legal fees, bankrupts Whistler. So he ends up having to sell his London home ends up having, he had amassed this great British porcelain collection, he ends up having to sell that to pay his 
legal fees. And at the same time all this is going on, he gets a commission from the Fine Arts Society in London to go to Venice to create etchings of Venetian scenes for the Fine Arts Society in London, but then Whistler can then use the images for his own purposes. So living a relatively bohemian lifestyle after he's gone bankrupt fighting Ruskin in this libel case, uh, Whistler goes to Venice and creates a whole series of prints uh, uh, with Venice as subject matter. And we have one of those prints in the exhibition. It's, it's of San Giorgio Maggiore from 1880, and it's of the Venetian Lagoon. And it's just an exquisite print, and we're so happy to have it in the collection at the Joint Art Museum. And so that's a keystone piece in the exhibition. <laughs> what a uh, story. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned there's another one that maybe you like not necessarily for its historical yeah, significance, there's, there, huh? There's a drawing ripped right out of his sketchbook by American artist Red Grooms, who had been born in Nashville. Red Grooms is a true 20th century multimedia artist. He did paintings and drawings and sculpture and traditional aspects but he was also a performance artist did film and in fact did entire room installations and in 1968 red grooms was the american artist representative to the venice biennial that every other year international exhibition that takes place in venice artists coming from all over the world as representatives of their countries he was the american artist for the venice biennial and there he did a room installation of the city of chicago and I've seen pictures of it, and I'm not really remembering details, but it was types of images that you would associate with Chicago. Skyscrapers, uh, Al Capone, the slaughterhouses, and all those other aspects. You would experience that in a room installation. And that's what Red Grooms did. But, of course, he was in Italy, so he traveled. And one of the places he went is he went all the way to Sicily and went to Palermo. And so in our exhibition, we have a sketch that Red Grooms did. And like all of his other sketches and drawings, it's largely caricature. It's very cartoonish, and it's of the public market in Sicily, in Palermo, where you've got all the various characters uh, selling fruit and selling fish and dogs and crazy-looking children and all these other aspects of the open-air market in Palermo in this wonderful drawing that's on display at the museum. Uh, so it's fun to have that one, and that one's a lot of fun. So if I have two favorite. It's, it may be bookended by those two in the exhibition. Oh, that's great. <laughs> You're listening to KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. Also, Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting GIVEKYRS to 44321. That's all one word, GIVEKYRS to 44321. And, Paul, you were talking about being a in the business of a, being a museum uh, curator for almost 30 years. Um, I'd be interested to know, when did you kind of decide that's what you're going to do for a career, or did it just start out with, as a job and then ended up being a career? And after that, you know, like, what are the, the just the ins and outs? I mean, most people probably don't know what goes into doing the work you do. Sure, fair. A couple questions there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I loved museums as a child. I, I guess I had the privilege of uh, growing up in places where there were wonderful museums. In particular, I grew up in San Diego, 
And there's a number of wonderful museums in Balboa Park, separate, of course, from the San Diego Zoo, which is its own kind of living collection mm. that they have there. Uh, so just the experience of museums in particular uh, was always something that I loved. I loved that concept of the real thing, the authentic, and going to see that real thing in person that museums give you. We talked about authenticity mm-hmm. and travel. Part of what you get with museums is you get to experience the actual thing when it's on display. And so I just always liked that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame, I was a history major. So there's that question, right, is mm-hmm. what the heck do you do with a history major <laughs> when it's all said and done? And I was thinking of law school, that I was probably ended up going to law school when I was thinking about that. But I had a nice conversation with the, the chairperson of the history department at Notre Dame, who was my advisor. And he knew I had this interest in museums. He knew I had been to study abroad in Rome, had that background that I had developed in art history. And he suggested I look at museum studies programs, graduate programs in museum studies. Mm. Um, and so I went ahead and did that, and I applied. And I went to end up going to George Washington University in D.C. for a master's in museum studies. Uh, what was great about that program is that all the professors were adjuncts because they all had day jobs working in the various museums in Washington, D.C. So here you were learning about museums and how museums exist, the philosophy of museums, theory of museums, and then the practical nature of working in museums from the people who were working in some of the major museums in this country living in D.C., uh, where so many of those museums are free. And so that was the part that really hooked me is, of course, being in that master's program, but then experiencing Washington, D.C. and existing within that museum community in D.C. ensured that I was going to have this 27-year career working in art museums. Yeah. And so what is it about, uh, as you're starting out in this line of work of curating a museum, um, I mean, how do you go about deciding what goes in and how do you arrange it? I mean, there's a little bit of this, that, like our art galleries, a little bit of that, but sure. also being a history major, I, I'm sure that really actually was a, a, a bonus to, to able to match both of those up. Certainly true. So the largest point about it, an art museum is it's got two goals at the same time. One is the aesthetic goal, that the, the experience of an art museum is meant to be about beauty with a capital B. And so we keep that in mind at the Joan Art Museum. How can we present beauty? And of course, that doesn't mean that art can't be ugly, right? You can't be, you can be repulsed by a work of art, but it still impacts your sense of beauty. You still have an understanding of beauty in the ultimate philosophical ideal sense of it by being repulsed by something. You know what beauty is not then through the experience of an ugly work of art. So art museums are about beauty. They're about aesthetics on one level. So in some ways, the design of exhibitions is about as much as possible getting out of the way of the experience between the viewer and what the artist has created in the work of art. Uh, so you concepts of lighting and doing symmetry and balance within the way that you hang an exhibition. All of that is meant to make the visitor feel comfortable so there's nothing in the way of that relationship between them and the work of art. Now that sounds like a craft, like a like something you just can't start right out of college. Did you how long did it take you to refine that process to get to a point where you're actually I am getting out of the way of the experience because I think the tendency yeah. would be to overdo it. Sure. And I think part of it is just it's a practice in the same way that being a lawyer or a doctor or a nurse is a practice, right? You're yeah. always practicing. You're always improving. I would say my aesthetic is probably one that's still too crowded. I still like putting more works in. I want to put more stuff on display. 
Um, and my aesthetic ends up being maybe a little bit too crowded as part of that. Um, so it's something that you're always changing and, and messing with. You're thinking about concepts like sight lines. Uh, I love a phrase that's one that I like to use is wall power, an image and putting an image in a particular long sight line, for example, that just kind of holds the wall and draws viewers through the space and thinking about the way that viewers and visitors to the exhibition move through the space. So there's that one aspect. There's the aesthetic aspect. But, of course, being an academic art museum, the other goal is, of course, to be educational, that we are a teaching museum. Uh, and so sometimes that means crafting exhibitions and organizing exhibitions so that they have themes and points of views that then communicate through text or through the way that the exhibition is organized what you hope the visitor ends up with when they leave. And the goal is for it to be educationally transformative, that the person who walks into the exhibition is a different person than the one who leaves the exhibition. Mm -hmm. In the same way that writers in writing a book hope that the experience of their novel or the experience of their poetry changes the reader, I like to think about exhibitions doing the same thing to visitors. Um, and so I, I try and craft exhibitions so that's true whether somebody spends three minutes in the exhibition and they end up at least with a sense of what the exhibition is about through the experience of it or somebody who spends two hours in the exhibition reading every single thing that we've written on those labels at the John Dart Museum and that they end up learning in a much deeper way as part of that ex exhibition experience. Now, are there iconic museum curators that other up-and-coming curators or people that would take a, a uh, an actual study of how to become a museum curator that people study or um, you know I somebody that curated let's say the Smithsonian or a certain wing or uh, maybe a museum in uh, Europe Italy sure that's, like that. that's that's a good question I, I think most of it is probably the major museums in this country the ones that you would usually associate with um, but from a curatorial prospect, somebody who was an early director and curator of like the Museum of Modern Art in New York, somebody like Alfred Barr, for example, and the types of exhibitions that he did and the ways that the Museum of Modern Art put art on display, I think has forever informed the way that the rest of us will always put art on display. And then part of it was this concept of aesthetics, of getting out of the way and focusing on lighting and balance and symmetry and those details so that there was this relationship that was possible between the viewer and the work of art uh, spacing and all of those sorts of details so somebody like alfred barr who was one of those early directors of of moma in new york would be one of those people um, but i think it's mostly institutions the way that institutions focus on how they create exhibitions and the subject matter of exhibitions i think influences the rest of us mm. so you've talked about these big um, you know, institutions and obviously Smithsonian, MoMA, these places. Is there a small, quirky museum somewhere that you just think is such a cool little spot? I mean, obviously, a famous one is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, you know, just quirky. Is there some place that you just say, it's got, it's such a distinct museum that I just love it, but it's unlike any other place? Well, I'm, it doesn't really qualify as small or small town, but the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh which is both an art museum and a natural history museum. So on one side, they've got this great art collection. And then you essentially cross the divide, and all of a sudden you're in this great natural history collection. So it's one of those places where within 10 minutes you can be experiencing great paintings and important paintings, and then you get to go see some 
full dinosaur bones and a triceratops that's on display. And so that's a fun, quirky museum. And Pittsburgh is a, is a wonderful museum town. The Andy Warhol Museum is there. And it's a great museum town. But I think that might be one of my favorite museums because you get everything all at once under the same roof at the Carnegie Museums in oh, Pittsburgh. Oh, that's cool. And it sounds like as you're talking, Mike said there's more of an art to creating a, a an exhibition. I bet you get this question a lot, but are you, I mean, other than creating exhibitions, are you an artist? Is that what no, drew you to it? No, or I'm, I'm a terrible artist. Yeah? <laughs> terrible. I, sometimes I get ideas and think I, maybe I'm going to try them out in photography and things like that. Or I've done some watcolor painting, but I'm a terrible artist. Now, so no, it's more from the point of view of an art historian. That makes sense. But background. do you think that part of the reason that you don't like your art is because you've seen so much great art. You're just continually comparing yourself to these other people. Or I could just be completely untalented. Which is more likely. <laughs> so uh, at the Junt, since you've been here, is there, is there though, kind of uh, piggybacking on what Eric was asking, a type of art that you gravitate towards that you say I would like to get this at the junt, or or is there a mandate of what you need to do, kind of representing Gonzaga, <clears throat> in terms of what art you put in there? Sure. Um, no, I have a lot of freedom, which is a wonderful aspect yeah. of the job. Um, so we ask a series of questions of ourselves as we're planning the exhibition schedule at the Junt Art Museum. Is a potential exhibition? Does it seem like a good idea? Right, an exhibition that's not a good idea or doesn't have a good idea and a theme running through it is never going to be a good exhibition, especially one that you're not passionate about as a curator. Um, does it of art historical importance? Right, can we hold it up within the understanding of art history, our peers, other institutions? Is it of art historical importance? Does it connect somehow to teaching, research, and service at the university? Is there some hook within the university for this exhibition? Right? Can it be useful on campus? Do we think the exhibition will be of interest to people living in Spokane and the Inland Northwest? Do we think it will be of interest to people visiting campus? People come from all over the world to visit Gonzaga uh, or on campus for all kinds of reasons. Do we think it's of interest to them? Can we afford it? And does it fit in our small, very small spaces at the Junt Art Museum? And usually if we can say yes to all of those questions, we try and find a way to get it on the exhibition schedule. Meanwhile, we're thinking about media, right? We don't, don't want to do five photography exhibitions in a row, but also time periods. We don't want to do five 18th century exhibitions in a row either. And so we're thinking about balance on the mm -hmm. exhibition schedule with all of those issues in mind. So the 19th Amendment, the Prince by Women exhibition, is a good example of all of those things being, yes, there's the hook, there's all the events going on on campus in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, but it's important art historical work. There's great artists that are in that exhibition. Um, people like Cindy Sherman and Allison Saar and Corita Kent are in that exhibition. Um, but then it checks all those other boxes, too. Do we think it's of interest mm -hmm. to people visiting campus and here in the, in the Northwest? Do you have a team of colleagues to go through that checkbox of things? There's, there's, and how does that work? Sure. There's four of us working full-time at the museum. So we're a giant staff of four at the Chant Art Museum <laughs> working full-time. And we do it as a team. I've got the colleagues, and um, sometimes I forego being curator for an exhibition. And 
uh, an idea emerges from my staff and that ends up being the exhibition and they function as project manager and curator for a particular exhibition because they're passionate about an idea or passionate about a topic. Um, so we really do function as a team of four. Yeah. So, so with both of these exhibitions, are are you finding that classes are integrating uh, some of their assignments and some of the things that they're doing this semester with the Grand Tour of the Nineteenth Amendment? Sure. There's so there's some very specific examples. Um, a professor on campus who's teaching women in antiquity decided to bring her class in to talk about these twentieth century images by women and what they were thinking about as artists and women also, and then applying some of those concepts of looking and thinking about art and material culture and applying it then to the ancient world. So Mm. she went back to her classroom, and that's what she's working on the rest of the semester. Uh, We get wonderful classes from the communication department, COM 100, and they're just talking about visual literacy and the way that museums function and the way that artists communicate imagery uh, through their works of art, and they use that to talk about communication in their classes. Uh, Today we had a class on um, from the journalism that they civic journalism that was the class I was trying to think what it was called civic journalism they were actually in there to their project was to write a review of the exhibition hmm. so they're essentially writing a newspaper article that's a review of the exhibition and that's their assignment in class and so I gave them a tour today and a little bit of the behind the scenes thinking about the exhibition so that they could then do that assignment for civic journalism class uh, Todd Marshall brought his poetry class hmm. Uh, and they do ekphrastic poetry based upon the works that are on display. So we often touch on those classes no matter what the exhibition is because the exhibition can apply to the whatever the subject matter is that they're already teaching. So related to that, there are kind of two separate questions that are that are both related. Have you been able to connect to any high school classes and do things like that? And then the second kind of bigger question is to what extent uh, has the museum tried to reach out into the community, be it a First Friday or anything like that. I mean, I don't think you're part of First Friday or anything like that. I'm just saying, in general, um, I know it's a Gonzaga museum, but to what extent are you trying to integrate with the community? Okay, so let's the first question hey, is yeah. connecting to, to other. <laughs> just as an example, the AP capstone class at Rogers High School, they were studying the constitutional amendments. Mm. They came to see that exhibition to talk about the 19th Amendment, but to talk about feminism and the role of women as artists. And so that teacher at Rogers was wonderful to bring her class specifically just to see that exhibition, the Prince by Women exhibition. And then we spent time in the other exhibitions, too. Uh, We get elementary school classes and high school classes from all over the region, even from as far away as Sandpoint, making bus trips to the university for other purposes, but also just to see us at the Gent Art Museum on campus. Um, So we intentionally reach out uh, through the various school districts, in particular to the art teachers in the region, to make use of our exhibitions, to let them know what is up, Mm. and to invite them to bring their students. And that we're happy to have conversations about any of the ways that our exhibitions can connect to what they're doing in the classroom. Uh, So we have some teachers that take us up on those ideas often on a regular basis and others who end up being kind of a one-off every now and then. Uh, The second part of it is we do participate in the first Friday. Oh, you do? Okay. So all of our exhibitions have opening receptions. Mm -hmm. Those are often scheduled. It depends on the way their other schedule breaks out, but sometimes they're scheduled with the visual arts tour, for example, in February, or with the, the fall walking tour 
That's part of what Spokane Arts and the Downtown Partnership does with those First Fridays. And so we've got opening receptions. We are always open to the public, and we are always free. You do not have to pay a penny to come into the Junt Art Museum. And so we are one of the ways, besides basketball, that Gonzaga <laughs> University interacts with the Spokane community. Mm -hmm. Now, in a really stupid, this is a stupid question, but I think it might be relevant to people who would be listening. Where where do you approach the junk? Where, where is it oh, yeah, on campus? That's a, that's a great question. Is it so over by the warehouse? We or? are essentially on the western edge of yep. campus. <laughs> we are adjacent to what is now a giant building, which is the Waltzen Performing Arts Center hmm, on okay. campus. So that's easy to find because it's an enormous, wonderful building. Um, but we're on that western edge, essentially the corner of DeSmet and Pearl, one block east of that Division Ruby corridor. Mm -hmm. Right out in front of the museum is a parking lot. There are a handful of parking spaces that are labeled Junt Art Museum Parking. So parking is free. And you park there, and you come inside to the museum, you sign that your car is in those parking spaces, and in theory, campus security is not supposed to ticket <laughs> you while you're in those spaces. They're supposed to ask us first. So we are always free, parking is free, and you are welcome on Gonzaga's campus specifically to visit the Junt Art Museum at any time. Monday through Saturday, 10 to 4, closed Sundays, and university holidays. Yeah. Now, as a historian, um, I, I let look at that question that Eric asked, rather than just connecting with art teachers, because I just think, I don't know how you would teach history, American history, world history. It seems to be, for many students, kind of a dry thing, because I think one of the things that's missing is that authenticity or that connection that uh, holistic connection on how all these things integrate through the from a historical standpoint like you could talk about the artist representing a certain period of time or something like that but um, do you give instruction to like like educators uh, that are teaching history or teach world history or even those kind of things and how they can integrate this kind of a uh, integrate that experience into their curriculum? Certainly, certainly. So one of my team members, one of my colleagues is a curator of education. Her name is Karen Kaiser. And her entire job is hinged on that very idea, mm. that making the collection accessible not only to Gonzaga students and faculty members, but to educators within the community. Uh, one of the other aspects that we do at the, the museum, of course, is we're relatively small. And we've got 5,400 objects in the collection, and right now there's 96 in the two exhibitions, plus in our chancellor's room where there's the giant Dale Chihuly Gonzaga Red Chandelier that's on display and some other Chihulis. I haven't done the actual count, but it's probably 130, 140 objects that are on display. Now, I'm bad at math, but that's a bad percentage of the 5,400 objects that are in the collection. But that collection is always accessible to anybody by appointment. So part of what we do at the Junt Art Museum is to make that collection accessible to whoever wants to see it, sometimes themed on a particular concept. So as an example, as an outside Gonzaga group, Spokane Falls Community College, their printmaking courses, they come and spend time in our print study room where we pull objects from storage that show all the various printmaking techniques they come look at the actual work created by artists using those techniques, and they go back to Spokane Falls and in the printmaking classes, use those techniques to create their own works of art. 
And that's just one example. We could do a, a photojournalism class. We can pull photographs from the collection mm. just for the period of time for the classes in the space. They look at some of the great photographs that are in the collection. Those objects go back into storage when they leave, and then they can make use of those conversations in their classroom. So we do that at the Junt Art Museum all the time for various groups that visit the museum as well. Is there an accessible catalog that people could search to no, find out what was in there? See, that's part of the problem. Yeah. That, uh, we've got a proprietary database that is ancient. Mm. Uh, it's FileMaker Pro, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> uh, so we have a database in-house that people who are interested in that can come experience the database in-house and look what's in the collection, do keyword searches and all of that. Mm -hmm. But right now it's just cost prohibitive for our small staff and our small mm -hmm. budget to get that information out there on the Internet in the way that it is at major museums. In so country. could somebody send an email to somebody saying, hey, do you have some of this stuff in there? Yeah, and absolutely. So uh, we're all accessible. All of our emails are accessible on Junt Art Museum's webpage at uh, gonzaga.edu. And you can find us that way and, and write. Um, I'm interested in Shakespeare. How many prints do you have in the collection that make use of Shakespeare as a subject matter? And could I arrange for my class to come see those? Mm -hmm. And we answer those kinds of questions. Or um, I'm interested in botany. How many plant images do you have in the collection? And I can't even imagine how many there are. Mm -hmm. There's a lot. And you could have a conversation then about those particular works in our print study room for that period of time. The objects, that's the purpose of that room, is the objects then go back into storage after you're done, and you get to then continue to talk about them. How far do you plan ahead for your exhibitions? We're about three to four years out for our major exhibitions. Wow. Yeah. So what's what's next in the fall? Next, uh, well, we've got summer first. Oh, you got summer. Yeah. So oh, these cool. exhibitions, the Grand Tour exhibition, the Images of Italy, mm -hmm. and the Prints by Women in Celebration of the 19th Amendment. Uh, are up through graduation weekend at Gonzaga, which at Gonzaga undergraduate weekend is graduation is always Mother's Day. So those exhibitions come down. We do show changes usually about right about two weeks, just under two weeks. And then our summer exhibition is, is actually, we typically do our summer exhibitions focused on regional art, but we're not doing that this summer. We're doing seven years of recent acquisitions to the collection. So it is a sampling of the objects that the museum has acquired either through purchase or through some of our wonderful, generous donors who are art collectors. It's a sampling of all of the objects that have come into the collection over the last seven years. So it's going to be, I think the list actually made it at 105 objects from the grouping of objects that have come into the museum's collection, the Junt Art Museum, in the last seven years. And so that's going to take over the whole museum, that exhibition. Uh, and that's our exhibition that runs to the summer. And summer, two-week show change, we make sure we get an exhibition up in advance or shortly after school starts for fall semester in September, the end of August. Uh, that exhibition, the main exhibition, is going to be focused on Matrix Press over in Montana and the 20 years that Matrix Press has been collaborating with artists over there, um, really from the American West but from throughout the country, and the images that Matrix Press has helped artists create. It's going to be a retrospective of the work that Matrix Press has done over there in Montana. Oh, cool. So, Paul, I'm, you know, you've been doing this again, like you said, close to 30 years. You've been here in Spokane. Uh, you keep making me feel old. I know. Well, I, I, speaking <laughs> of experience, but um, what do you, how much, um, what do you see? I mean, do you have some goals that you've set for yourself relative to how you want to, um, you know, maybe for the Junt Museum, but also um, the legacy you kind of want to leave as a, a really a career 
person in doing uh, a museum curating? Sure. So part of it is the, the dissemination of information. So doing quality exhibitions, but also wherever possible when we can afford it, doing publications that then further disseminate. So the problem with exhibitions is, of course, is that they close. They end. Um, and as a middle-aged man, I think the closest I'm ever going to come to postpartum depression <laughs> is when an exhibition that I have been working on for a long period of time closes and I don't know what to do with myself next because I've put all this energy into an exhibition. That's happened to a couple different, couple different times in my career where I kind of end up in this malaise because I've put all of this energy into something. It's existed, it's happened, and it's done. It's end, it closes. Mm-hmm. Um, publications help with that a little bit, right? So the life of the exhibition gets to live on in a publication. So we've done four books at the Gent Art Museum over the last six and a half years, which is quite a bit for a small institution like we are as far as publications. Um, so that's part of it is the dissemination of knowledge. Um, but there's some aspects of the collection that I really would like to get out on display. Um, one of them in particular is uh, an area that I've been involved in a couple different times in, in my career in other places, and that's the art of the Great Depression, the Works mm. Progress Administration era. And, of course, Spokane, for a period of a few years, was one of the hubs of one of the great WPA federally supported art centers in this country mm. during the New Deal. Spokane mm. Art Center was on North Monroe. Oh, and it yeah. existed beginning in 1938, and it closed with World War II in 1942 when the federal government decided it needed to spend other money and those monies on the war effort. Um, but it existed here in Spokane for a few years, and that is a great example of this, the word would probably be synergy, would probably be the best word to describe it, between the goals of the federal government in the New Deal and the politics of the New Deal in the 1930s and early 1940s with artists and the artist community. And so it's the Roosevelt administration and Congress recognizing that artists were an important part of the economy, that the cultural economy existed. And if the United States was going to come out of the Depression, the federal government needed to support artists too. And they set up a whole series of programs to support artists throughout this country. And the Spokane Arts Center was one of the byproducts of that federal money, what we would call stimulus money these days. But the other part of it is it's a massively prolific period of artistic history. Oh, that'd be awesome. Where you have all of these artists creating images, including ones here in the Inland Northwest. And there's an exhibition now at the Tacoma Art Museum celebrating the art on the other side of the Cascades in particular associated with the WPA and these New Deal programs, all those alphabet programs that existed in the New Deal. Uh, We've got some great objects in our collection from the 1930s. And I've done some couple small exhibitions already that made use of some of those, but it would be fun to do a big exhibition focused on art of the New Deal, in particular focused on the Inland Northwest and some of these I think that would be. I think that would be a winner here in Spokane. I mean, I think a lot of the art that's really um, popular or gets a lot of uh, audience is this this notion of place, and that really hits the nail right on the head. Sure, certainly does. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, uh, our yeah. time is up. Uh, wow. It was a pleasure listening to you talk about the, the two exib- exhibitions you have going on there uh, through May 22nd. No, wh- whatever graduation weekend is and Mother's Day. So yeah. Mother's May, Day, whatever day that is. May 10th, It 12th, says it right 13th, here inside the book. Right Let me look. Book, yeah. yeah um, right on that first title goes, page. Um, May 9th. May 9th is the Saturday before Mother's Day. May 10th is Mother's okay. Day. That's perfect. Uh, 10 to 4. Monday through Saturday. That's correct. Uh, and it's free? Always free. Always free. Well, it was a pleasure Man. talking to you. Yeah, thank you both. Pleasure, Paul. Yeah, thanks for coming it. in.